We'll be looking at two passages today. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, 12 through 14, and James chapter 5, verse 16. So good morning. My name is Robin, and I'm one of the two pastors here. Our lead pastor, Jason Mather, is preaching at another church today, so you guys are stuck with me. Um, if you would, would you stand as a sign of reverence as we read God's word together, if you're able? This is God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." Jumping to James chapter 5. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as, it's, as it is working. Let's pray. So, Father, we do pray now that your spirit would come and it would work. You would stir our hearts. You would convict us. For those that are weary, those that are discouraged, those that are tired, I pray that you would comfort and you would strengthen and you would whisper sweet words of love and grace and renewal to them. Strengthen our faith. Help us to see Jesus more clearly, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. In Matthew 5, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus describes what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus tells us that people who are part of that kingdom live like salt and light here on earth in this kingdom. They're, they live their lives with so much integrity that people take notice of their good deeds and their Father in heaven receives glory. Jesus tells us that people who are part of that kingdom in heaven, that kingdom, are so committed to holiness that they deal with lust not just on the superficial level, but on the heart level. Not only do they strive to never commit adultery, they strive to never even look upon a woman with lust. Jesus tells us that people who are part of that kingdom understand that this life and this kingdom is temporary, and so they handle their money differently. They view themselves not as owners, but as stewards of God's money who've been entrusted with God's resources, and their goal is to invest their money, their time, in the things that God would invest in, and in so doing, they're building their treasures, they're storing their treasures in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing the mindset and the heart and the behavior of believers who belong to that kingdom, and they're different because their king is different. Jesus is the king of that kingdom, and he's not like Caesar, and he's unlike any other king that they've ever known. And it's almost as if this heavenly kingdom is being lowered and it's being brought here by Jesus into the middle of Israel. Um, back in 1994, I lived in Budapest, Hungary for a year. And in Budapest, there's a place called the American Club. 
And the reason why it was called the American Club was that when you walked into the space, you're supposed to feel like you're in America. And when you go through the main doors, you felt like you're walking into Dave and Buster's or the Yard House. You, you walk in and there's this um, American restaurant where they serve beer, where they serve all kinds of beer and burgers and fries. And there are TVs everywhere, and usually it was ESPN or Seinfeld. Um, all the workers were American. Everybody spoke English. Or this place was filled with expats. And American holidays like Valentine's Day and Halloween were, were even more special. But Thanksgiving in particular, you felt like you were being transported back to your little hometown. You smelled the turkey and the gravy and the cranberry sauce, and you saw the whole spread on the table. And on occasion, an American would bring a Hungarian guest into the American club, and it was always interesting to see the reaction of a Hungarian. Because here he is, this, this Hungarian, in his own country, but as he walks into the American club, it's like he was lost. Everything was different and unfamiliar. He didn't understand the language. The food was different. This was before all of the fast food chains got into Hungary, so everything was different. The food was different. He didn't know the TV shows, and he felt out of place. And in the same way, the kingdom that Jesus brings into this earth is so distinct in its values and beliefs and ethics and practices, so distinct from, from this kingdom with its values and beliefs and ethics and practices, that if a non-believer were to walk into a church service today, if a non-believer who is totally unfamiliar with the Bible, unfamiliar with Christianity, were to walk into church today and hear that Jesus Christ physically, bodily, rose again from the dead, and he floated into heaven, and that Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way to have eternal life, that non-believer would feel lost, he would feel offended, and he would feel out of place. He would be like that Hungarian guest walking into the American club, wondering what in the world is going on. So Jesus describes for us what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. In the New Testament... There are 59 one another passages. Now, up on the screen, you have a sample of these one another statements. Love one another. This shows up 17 times. Serve one another three times. Accept one another. Strengthen one another. Help one another. Care for one another. Encourage one another. Six times it shows up. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Commit to one another. And that's just a sample. There's about 35 more. And all of these one another passages are meant to describe how believers who are part of this kingdom that Jesus brings, who are part of the church today, are to relate to one another. Now, at the American Club in Budapest, there was this unspoken rule that when you were there, you only spoke English. Um, nights when an NFL game was televised, you were to wear your favorite team jersey, even if it wasn't one of the two teams that were playing. And on Thanksgiving, you were expected to bring a traditional Thanksgiving dish. And what made me when I would walk into the American club as an Asian American, because they all thought I was a Chinese communist, honestly, because that's, that's, that's no joke. They had, you know, they had just experienced communism, so they thought I was a Chinese communist, and there were a lot of Chinese people that were getting killed. Um, as I walked into the American club, their immediate perception of me was communist. I was from China. But what made me American was not that's, that's just the fact that I walked in there. It was the way I dressed. It was the way I behaved. It was the way I spoke. It was everything about the way I was interacting with others that communicated that I was an American, that I was a part of this American club. You see, it's one thing to walk through the doors of this building and physically be here at King's Church on a Sunday morning. 
But it's an entirely different thing to live and interact with one another as God's people with kingdom ethics. And the 59 one another passages are meant to describe how believers in the church with kingdom ethics, with kingdom values, relate to one another. Now, this morning, we're continuing in our series on the church, and we want to look at these one another passages, but we're going to focus on just two, two from the passage that we read this morning. The two I want to focus on are confessing our sins to one another and forgiving one another. And all of these one another passages are are incredibly important for the church, but I think Confessing our sins to one another and forgiving our sin and forgiving one another may be two of the most important for a healthy church. Now, why is confessing our sins to one another so important for a healthy church? Now, here's why. Confessing our sins to one another is the key that unlocks the door to genuine fellowship. I think we've got a slide for that. So this is my first point. Confessing our sins to one another is the key that unlocks the door to genuine fellowship. And here's what I mean. It's entirely possible to go to church every Sunday, attend midweek Bible studies, participate in social events like a bonfire or movie night, and yet still feel very alone and very helpless when it comes to your spiritual health. Now, here's what happens to a lot of believers. At some point, the Holy Spirit convicts you and you recognize that you're a sinner in need of you're in desperate need of grace and forgiveness. And so you confess your sins to God, you repent and you accept Jesus, you invite Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, and your Christian journey begins. You begin your life as a follower of Jesus. And so you start going to church every week, you attend Bible studies, you find yourself hanging out with a lot of other Christian friends, and you subconsciously build this expectation that all of a sudden, that you're going to stop sinning so much or stop sinning as much because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And because you're surrounded by other Christians who are thinking the same thing, you don't know what to do with yourself when all sorts of perverse and wicked and evil and jealous thoughts enter your mind. And at times, you still act out on these things. So you're frustrated. You're disappointed with yourself. You're ashamed that you keep giving into those sins that you struggled with even before you were a Christian. But most of all, you're terrified. You're terrified that other Christians will find out how messed up you still are. And so you're with your other Christian friends, and you get together, and you share, and you talk about how stressful your work is, or uh, you know, how your, pain, your, your boss is such a pain, or you know, it's crazy, your work schedule is so crazy, and all of those things are important, but you don't ever get to the real stuff. The envy and the jealousy you feel in your heart towards a friend, that envy and jealousy that just sucks the joy out of you, that makes it impossible to love that person, or the addiction to pornography, or some online chat website that's destroying and killing your soul, the need to control your kids and your schedule that leaves you perpetually angry and discontent. That's the real stuff that you need to share, and that's the stuff you need to confess to one another, because when you do, the image that comes to mind is it's like you've got a spiritual bat, and you're just smacking the head of Satan with it, just, right? Because that's what you're doing, because there's nothing more that Satan will love than to have the children of God who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, delivered out of the domain of darkness, put into the kingdom of light to live in isolation, and fear and shame withering away spiritually on the inside while putting on a front and acting like everything's just fine. 
Satan, the father of lies, knows that if he, if he can keep believers deceived and fooled into thinking that they're alone in their sin, that they're, not, that they're the only ones struggling, that they'll be judged by other believers if they were to share honestly, Satan knows that he can discourage and disillusion believers into doubting their faith, doubting the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and ultimately even doubting God himself. Now listen to what Richard Foster says about this. Confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and lived in veiled lies and hypocrisy. But if we know that the people of God are first a fellowship of sinners, we are freed to hear the unconditional call of God's love and to confess our needs openly before our brothers and sisters. We know we are not alone in our sin. The fear and pride that cling to us like barnacles cling to others also. We are sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. In James 5, the passage that we read, where we're told to confess our sins to one another, that verse is placed in the context of people who are experiencing physical sickness. And there James is saying that there are times when the cause of a physical sickness or a physical illness is sin. Maybe not too often, but there are times when that happens. And so the most important remedy in that situation is for that sick person to confess his sins, to be prayed for, and experience physical healing. So James is addressing this physical bodily illness, this sickness that's rooted in a refusal to confess sin. But I think what's far more common and even more destructive is believers who are suffering from spiritual sickness because of a refusal to confess our sins to one another. And that's precisely what Richard Foster is speaking to when he says that in acts of mutual confession, in acts of mutual confession, we release, we release the power that heals. What he's saying is there's something powerful and healing and transformative that takes place when you gather with other believers in this room and with humility and faith, you dare confess the real stuff that torments your soul. You dare confess and you talk about the stuff that you can't seem to overcome and you pray for each other. You're confessing that you're not strong enough to fight that sin in your life. You're acknowledging your need for grace today just as much as you needed grace the first day you trusted in Jesus. And as you gather as people who are weak rather than strong, poor rather than rich, Jesus comes and he comforts and he heals and he strengthens and he transforms. Now, I started by saying that confessing our sins to one another is the key that unlocks the door to genuine fellowship. Now, listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about that. It may be that Christians, in spite of corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur. Why? Because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. 
So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and in hypocrisy. The fact is that we are all sinners. Now, I've been a Christian since I was 14 years old, and that was 29 years ago. And in this final breakthrough in fellowship that Bonifer is describing is something that, only, that I only began to experience 10 years ago when I came here to King's Church. For almost 20 years, even as I was learning and growing and maturing as a believer, there's this whole other beautiful and rich dimension of spiritual life and vibrancy and deep, authentic community that I never tapped into until I began confessing those sins that I was terrified to admit and allow fellow believers to begin praying for me. I'll tell you what did this for me. I remember um, there was a time in my life I was really, really struggling with sexual purity with online pornography. And even as I say it, it's, I'm ashamed and I feel guilty. And I remember confessing that to Jason. And I remember his response was so embracive. And he acknowledged his own struggles. And in that moment, it was almost like the secret battle that I had for so long was being opened and shared. And I was just, it, it was like, it, it was a breakthrough. The, the, the two words, breakthrough, are exactly the words that I would describe to describe that moment when I felt like there was a door that was open for me to grow and change and for an experience of community that I had never experienced before. Where are you spiritually? Are there things that you're terrified to share? Sins that you feel like only you struggle with, things that you're ashamed to admit. And I want to ask you today and this week to, and I want to challenge you to really, really pray about those things, those things that you're too afraid to admit and consider who you can confess those things to and, be, and to be prayed for and to begin experiencing community and transformation, perhaps in a way that you have not up until this point. Ooh, I just got all passionate and heated and I just... Uh, the second one, another passage that I want to focus on this morning, which is also crucial for a healthy church, is forgiving one another. Now, if confessing our sins to one another is the key that unlocks the door to genuine fellowship in a church community. Forgiving one another is what allows that genuine fellowship to continue and to thrive. Now, have you ever ex um, spent an extended amount of time with a couple that just can't seem to get along? Uh, there's a couple that I know, they're not a part of this church, and I know both the husband and the wife fairly well, and as individuals, they're amazing people. Um, they're both really smart, hardworking, they're very successful in their respective careers. Um, they have a couple kids that they care deeply for, and they're both Christians, and they're both involved in, in their church in different areas, and when you interact with them individually, it's great, but when you're with them together, it gets very uncomfortable. Now, I would say within 15 minutes of being with them, by the way they talk at each other or past each other or over each other, you can tell that there's a lot of unresolved conflict and anger between them. And that anger starts to leak when I'm there. It just sort of leaks out and it comes out. Now, of course, conflict is normal in every human relationship and is certainly to be expected in marriage. But when I'm with that couple, it's not just that there's conflict. What becomes clear is that there's very, very little forgiveness between these two people. They're both keeping score. 
They're both keeping score. She feels like he doesn't help enough with the kids, and all he cares about is his work. And so she's bitter, and she holds that against him. On his part, he doesn't feel like she appreciates everything that he does for the family, and all she does is criticize him. So he's resentful towards her, and he holds that against her. Neither is willing to forgive. Neither is willing to lose. And I'll be honest with you, it's difficult to be around them when they're together. I sense no joy between them. There's very little affection, very little warmth. There's very little kindness. And so while I'm drawn to them as individuals, I'm turned off by them as a couple. Now, let me just be the first to confess that my wife and I were that couple 10 years ago. There's a very, very difficult stretch in our lives where we would have been that couple that would have been very difficult to be with because there were things that were leaking. And that's what the church is like when believers are unwilling to forgive each other. And there will be times when we need to forgive. For example, maybe you share something very personal with your community group or your cluster group, and, and you find out that one of the people in your group shared carelessly some very sacred, um, private information that you shared with, with her or him and shared it with someone outside of the group. So you feel betrayed and hurt. You can't believe that person could be so thoughtless, so you become angry, you become guarded, and everything that person does begins to annoy you. So your heart turns cold against that person. Or maybe you went out of your way to volunteer to serve at VBS. You gave way more hours than everybody else. You did a lot of things behind the scenes. You stayed late and cleaned up the crazy mess that's there at the end of each night. But at the end of VBS, as Irene, the children's director, was publicly acknowledging and thanking everybody, she forgot to mention your name. Now, you don't mean to be sensitive, but you can't believe that she would forget you. You're hurt. You feel like you're not being appreciated, and so your heart becomes critical towards her, towards King's kids, and towards the leadership of the church. One more. You reach out to Pastor Jason or me, and you invite us into a delicate situation between you and your wife. Unfortunately, we're clumsy, and we don't handle that situation very well. We're not as discerning or as sensitive as we could have been, so you're hurt. You're disappointed. You find yourself becoming increasingly critical and distant with us. How do you get past that betrayal, that hurt, or that disappointment? How do you go about forgiving that person who's hurt you? In Colossians, Paul is writing to a group of believers that are very, very sober about their faith. This church in Colossae understands that the struggles between the old man and the new man are very real. They know that you can experience, on the one hand, profound love and profound forgiveness, and yet still struggle to love and forgive others. And so in Colossians 3, Paul offers us several ways to live as God's people, to forgive one another when we feel like we can. And I want to touch upon just two. The first has to do with the heart, <clears throat> has to do with the heart, and this is the most important. Not yet. In verse 13, Paul tells us quite simply, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, this can sound very, very insensitive of Paul. Maybe he doesn't know just how much you've been wronged or how badly you've been sinned against. But Paul is saying that the most powerful cure for an unforgiving heart is to remember how much you've been forgiven. The most powerful cure, the most powerful remedy for an unforgiving heart is to remember how much you've been forgiven. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in that parable, 
one servant who owes his master hundreds of millions of dollars, an amount that he could never pay back, is forgiven of his entire debt. However, that same servant who just experienced incredible pardon and forgiveness turns to his servant who owes him roughly $25,000 in today's money and throws him into prison until every last dollar is paid back. Paul is saying whenever you refuse to forgive someone, you're acting like that unforgiving servant. No matter what anybody has done to hurt you, no matter how much you think you've been wronged and sinned against, their sin amounts to $25,000. You've been forgiven hundreds of millions, and it costs Jesus his very life to secure your forgiveness. Paul is saying, let that truth settle into your hearts. Let it just settle into your mind and into your heart every time you find yourself unwilling to forgive, and let that grace Fill your heart, let it soften you, and let it free you to forgive. So when we feel like we can't forgive others, we have to first deal with our hearts. Second, we need to use our minds. Now, I think it's awesome that Paul tells us to use our imagination when it comes to living as God's people. He says this in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is encouraging us to use our minds to imagine ourselves sitting next to Jesus on his throne, ruling and governing over his kingdom. Imagine yourself, he's saying, imagine yourself right now in heaven, sitting next to Jesus, in his glory, in his splendor, in all, of his, in all of his holiness. And if you were there right now, how would you live? How would you speak? Would you be holding a grudge? Would you be unwilling to forgive someone who hurt you when you're sitting next to the one who died for you to forgive you? Using our mind is something we don't talk about or encourage nearly as much, but this is very important for Paul. He knows how important our thought life is. He knows how important our imagination is when it comes to holiness. He tells us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewal of your minds. One writer describes the Christian as someone who is practicing the life of heaven on earth. Practicing the life of heaven on earth. Believers are, in a sense, stuck between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Believers live here on earth, but they imagine, themselves, they imagine themselves seated next to Jesus on his throne, and they live according to kingdom ethics, confessing our sins to one another and forgiving one another. Both are so important for the church to be healthy. Confessing our sins to one another opens the door to genuine fellowship and transformation. Forgiving one another, when we do that, we preserve, the, we preserve that fellowship and we protect it against the devil who would try to steal, kill, and destroy everything good that God is doing in this church. Now, in Colossians 3.14, Paul makes a summary statement that undergirds every one another statement in the Bible. It says this, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The greatest single motivation for confessing our sins to one another and forgiving one another must be love, a love for Jesus and a love for others. I'm going to close with the story that Chuck Colson shares in one of his books. Chuck Colson is a prolific writer, amongst many other things. And he tells a true story of these American prisoners of war 
um, during the Second World War. And this story captures the heart of sacrificial love so well. Let me read this for you. The American prisoners were made to do hard labor in a prison camp. Each had a shovel and would dig all day, then come in and give an account of his tool in the evening. One evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard and the shovels were counted. The guard counted 19 shovels and turned in rage on the 20 prisoners, demanding to know which one did not bring his shovel back. No one responded. The guard took out his gun and said that he would shoot five men if the guilty prisoner did not step forward. After a moment of tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head bowed down. The guard grabbed him, took him to the side, and shot him in the head and turned to warn the others that they better be more careful than he was. When he left, the men counted the shovels, and there were 20. The guard had miscounted, and the boy had given his life for his friends. Chuck Colson asked these 19 other soldiers, having just witnessed what their friend did, is there anything that they wouldn't do if he were to ask them? Can you imagine the sacred bond that unites these 19 men to one another, knowing that any one of them could have been shot? Would they relate to each other differently from this point onward on account of the soldier who has sacrificed his life for them? And as believers, what unites us and what transforms the way we relate to one another is because of what Jesus said on the cross. All of the one another passages in Scripture are meant for people who've experienced salvation, whose lives have been spared, whose souls have been spared by their king. Let's pray together. Jesus, first of all, we are so thankful that by faith, by grace, that all of us can become yours, that we can all be invited into your family to be sons and daughters, to be prince and princesses in your kingdom. We thank you that, Jesus, you brought your kingdom and the kingdom is growing. And we thank you that you know us by name, you call us by name, that we are set apart, that we are marked out. But I do pray for us as King's Church that we would love each other, that we would inter interact with one another in such a way that the world would know that we are different, that we are different just like our King, that our love for each other would be so great that it would move and it would stir the hearts of those on the outside that observe. So Holy Spirit, would you do that in this church? Protect us from the evil one. Give us the freedom to confess our sins to one another, to strengthen each other, to encourage each other. Help us to be quick to forgive, quick to forgive at home with our spouses and our kids, at a cope with our coworkers, quick to forgive here. We are sinners and we're messy and we're gonna offend and we're gonna hurt each other. But would you remind us of the great forgiveness you've given us and softness that we might forgive others generously. In Jesus' name, amen.